or more castles than you can shake a mace at, there's no place like Wales. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Today, our travels take us near and far. In this edition of Travel with Rick Steves, my Welsh friend Martin Delandovitz tells us why his homeland of Wales offers you more variety than you ever imagined. We'll find out why Wales is a sightseeing surprise of the British Empire. And closer to home, we're making plans to take a great American road trip. Jamie Jensen wrote the book on it, a thousand pages worth of it. He can recommend the breathtaking parks, dusty towns, characteristic diners, offbeat nooks, and backdoor crannies that continue to make traveling the back roads of America a genuine rite of passage. All that and your calls coming right up. It promises to be a fun adventure for the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're talking with travelers on the line right now. If you'd like to get in on the conversation, it's easy. Give us a call. We're at 1-877-333-RICK. That's 877-333-7425. Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we got Naomi on the line in Irvine, California. Naomi, hi. Hi. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you doing? Great. I just take all your uh, all your information and store it. And we did that with Rue Claire in Paris, and now I'm on to Poland. Wow, from Paris to Poland. <laughs> well, that sounds fun. <laughs> We're doing um, an all-inclusive Poland, uh, starting in Warsaw, making a circle. We thought we would do it on our own, but we understand the language is quite difficult to understand. And mm-hmm. So we, we're thinking of taking a tour, but mm-hmm. we'd like to know if, um, when we're through with a tour, if we have a couple of extra days, mm-hmm. um, where you might suggest, and if you could tell me anything about Gdansk. That has been in the back of my mind for years. Wow. Well, <laughs> you're taking an all-inclusive tour. That means it's going to hit all the great sites probably in a week or something. We're taking two full weeks only in Poland. Well, that's going to cover everything that I know about Poland, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> but have you been to Gdansk? I have you not know? been to Gdansk, no. My co-author of my Eastern Europe guidebook has Cameron. Okay. And he's very enthusiastic about Gdansk. Okay. Well, it, we noticed that it takes up a few pages in uh, f- some guidebooks, and nothing is mentioned in others. So yeah. where would you suggest? What has been a highlight since we've never been there before? Well, for me, the highlight is is checking in with Warsaw, which was bombed flat after World War II. Mm-hmm. And they've just had, what, the 60th anniversary of uh, the uprising and, right. and all these tumultuous events towards the end of uh, World War II. And uh, there, consequently, there's a lot of new museums and memorials in Warsaw that really are quite breathtaking. Okay. And those are worth checking out. So it would behoove you to get bone up on the history a little bit because right. both the uh, the uh, ghetto uprising and the general uprising were just incredible as the Poles heroically tried to fight off the, the Germans and so on. Uh, so you'll want to check that out. Uh, of course, Krakow is everybody's favorite city in, mm-hmm. in Poland, and I'm sure you're going to go there. Right. And uh, you'll be able to go to Auschwitz, the powerful concentration camp, and the salt mine. And, you know, an example of how... Uh, complicated the Polish languages. The salt, I just say the salt mine because I can't even remember the name of it. Um, <laughs> but everybody knows the big salt mine outside of Krakow. Having said that Polish language is very difficult, remember, small language groups, and Poland's a lot of people, but it's it's not like French or German. I mean, their world is pretty small if all they speak is Polish. Anybody who's well-educated in Poland these days will speak English. Good. You will be surprised how easily you'll get around with your English. But as a traveler anywhere, you need to sort of develop a knack for choosing people who are likely to speak English. And that would be anybody in the tourist trade, uh, well-educated people, and young people. Okay. Yeah. Right. And if you had three extra days and we had done the country and you have seen certain areas, what area would you go back to? If I had three extra days, I think I would go to Berlin. Uh-huh. And I would, uh, you would pay no more to fly home from Berlin if after flying into wherever you're flying in, in Warsaw or Poland. And I last year when I was in Poland, I took the night train to Berlin, and it was wonderful. 
I arrived in Berlin the next morning, and I think Berlin is a very, very exciting city now with all of the uh, um, energy there as, as Germany is taking off with its, uh, you know, it's united and the government's back there. They got their new parliament right. building, and there's so much going on in Berlin. If you haven't been there for the, in the last 10 or 15 years, it's, I've never a, been. it's a huge change. And uh, I, I honestly would say if, you've, if you're doing Poland for a couple of weeks with a tour, unless you've got some interest to do more of it, I would try something entirely different. Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Good luck with your trip. Thank you. Thanks for the call. Bye-bye. We have Mary on the line from Athens, Georgia. Hi, Mary. Hi, Rick. How are you? Enjoy your program? Good. Thank you very much. How are you doing? I was going to suggest that you do some visiting in the Thessaloniki and Meteorah and the area where Philip of Macedonia's headquarters were. We went on an elder hostel and visited those areas, and they were most impressive. Yeah. Just so our listeners know, Meteora is, how did you pronounce it? Probably incorrectly. Uh, I, I M-E-T-E-O-R-A. Yeah, that's, I've always pronounced that Meteora. It is, you know, when people go to Greece, uh, Mary, they're often uh, over-focused on the ancient sites. And of course, you got to see the ancient sites, but there's so much more. And uh, part of the overlay in the fascinating history of Greece is the Byzantine period. Yeah. And that is where you will find these monasteries. And uh, Meteora has these pinnacles, and these monks would choose these remote pinnacles and build their monasteries on top of these uh I mean, it's incredible. You couldn't climb them. And they, and they, <laughs> you, look at James Bond. <laughs> yeah. And did you go there yet? Yes, we went. Did you go up into one of those monasteries? We did three of them. How, did you, how was your experience? Great. Yeah. Did you, did you get hoisted up in the net? No way. Do you remember those photographs? <laughs> Unfortunately, I didn't see James Bond until afterwards. <laughs> they, they used to hoist the, uh, the uh, monks up in these nets. Oh, yeah. And, and then uh, there was no way to... Something like cotton baskets. Yeah, and there was no way to uh, get up. Well, they would just hoist up the ladder and, or the net, and nobody else could get them up there. Yeah. Philip of Macedonia's headquarters and tomb had a museum underground, and it was most impressive with the grave goods and the actual tomb itself, and you looked at it. Oh, yeah. Now, you were there on an elder hostel tour. Yes. Can, I am so fascinated by elder hostels, I hear nothing but good stuff about it. Can you tell us uh, just what is an elder hostel tour, and how was it for you? I have been on maybe a dozen, and I'm about to go on one to, to uh, Holland in two weeks. But they are very good. Do you stay in college dorms? Do you have no, professors? No, uh, what's I've the deal? I've never been to one where we did stay in college dorms, but we're probably in three-star hotels. The okay. food is moderate. The guides are good. It's, uh, it has an educational focus? It definitely does, and if you ask questions about something, they usually know the answer, and if not, they try to find out. And are most people retired age? Uh, you have to be 55 or older to go. 55 or older. I have to wait just a few years. Yeah, you, you've got a few years to go. But I look <laughs> at these elder hostels, and it in- inspires me because it reminds me I've got a lot of good years of travel ahead of me when I see those elder hostel groups climbing those castles and learning all that. Well, they, they are good for giving you a... a an overview, and also to break you into going somewhere so that next time you go on your own, you know what you want to see. Well, that's good. And they're quite uh, reasonably priced? The prices are good. There is an also another group done by the University of New Hampshire called Interhostel. Mm-hmm. And I've been on theirs as well, and both of them are good. All right. I'd recommend either one. Good for you. But we've been to Greece twice and seen different areas. And I'd like to go back. Yeah, and now after the Olympics. I was just there after the Olympics, and boy, talk about a a leap in infrastructure. (laughs) They've got these wonderful state-of-the-art mass transit system in Athens now. They needed it. (laughs) Oh, they needed it. And they've also got a lot of environmental uh, uh, restrictions in in place now, where, for instance, they only let uh, half of the cars uh, on the road in the city on any given day, depending on if you have an even number or an odd number on your license plate. Oh, my goodness. And that has cut down a lot of the traffic congestion and pollution. And I've noticed uh, when people are going to Greece, the museums now are much more um, well-organized with plenty of good English information, and they've just really outdone themselves on making uh, Greece a lot more tourist-friendly than it used to be. Well, this is good. Did you see the sub the Subway Museum right on Santagma Square? Is there a museum? There's a museum. They dug into something, some relics. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. And that was one of that was really one of the most interesting presentations in Athens short of the Acropolis. You know, this is a very interesting challenge cities have all over Europe is when they dig their subways they encounter all of these ancient sites underground. Right. It's amazing what they found when they plow a field. And what they do is they turn that into a little uh, exhibit, a little wing of a museum. They put a, a glass case around it and they continue their building, but all the commuters then remember the, the heritage that their city's sitting on. Well, this is good. Who would go to Greece if they didn't have a heritage? You're right. Now, who would go to Greece if they didn't have souvlaki? Well, I could do without that. You could do without the souvlaki? Yeah. I love the souvlaki. Mm, I, I love the architecture. The architecture's great, yeah. Yeah, it was marvelous. Good. Well, thanks so much for your call. Well, thanks a lot, Rick. I've enjoyed hearing you. Good luck in your future travels. Thank you. Bye. Bye now. Give us a ring. Our phone number is one eight seven seven three three three rick Or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Jerry emailed us, and he wants to know, When driving around Europe, I am told not to leave stuff in the car, but our plans are to camp and we'll not have a hotel to park our baggage in, so what do we do to secure our luggage during the day in the cities when we're leaving from the car? Well, I would say just have a car that has a trunk instead of an open back and leave your luggage there in a paid lock. I would remind you that if you ever take a cheap option to park your car Uh, that's not guarded. Thieves know darn well which cars are tourists' cars and which cars are not, and they're more likely to break into the tourists' car. Take your valuables with you in a money belt. Leave the rest of your valuables in the car. If you have anything precious, don't leave it in the bag. The bag's likely to get taken. They're not going to gather up your your books and your souvenirs and and so on. So if I've got a journal or some film or, or something particularly precious to me but worthless to anybody else, I take it out of the bag and lay it next to my luggage in the trunk. And then if somebody does steal my bag, which has happened to me on a number of occasions, they don't get my sentimental precious things. They just get all my trashy, worthless stuff that they realized was stupid to steal in the first place. Um, Leave your valuables in your car or in your hotel room. It's more safe than carrying a day bag with you. The single item that's most likely to get ripped off or lost as you travel is your day bag. As soon as you let your guard down, as soon as somebody distracts you, as soon as uh, uh, you get jostled, it's the day bag that's gone. Okay? journey's far out of sight Have you wondered where your road will lead you Maybe to a bright day of sunshine Or a starry night in heaven Or it might be you're afraid to go Afraid to go But you've got to follow your Wales offers more sightseeing thrills per square mile than anywhere else in Britain. You can explore mighty castles with garrison towns, English green zones designed to quell Welsh insurgents eight centuries ago. Make friends with a slate miner, and then join him with his men's choir for a sing-along in a pub. And hear the lilting language locals claim is the one you'll find in heaven. There's no place like Wales, and we'll learn all about it with my tour guide friend from Carnarvon, Martin Delandovitz, coming up shortly on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're going to Wales, and I've got in town a friend of mine, Martin Delandovitz. Years ago, I was taking groups to northern Wales, and we'd always visit my favorite castle, Carnarvon Castle. And uh, every time I come with a group to an important site, the site that I really want my group to enjoy, I just hope and pray I, I connect with a good guide. And for many tours in a row, I lucked out to have Martin as my guide. Martin and I became friends, and uh, after a while, I actually started thinking of Martin as a guy who could be doing our tours all over Britain. I asked him if he'd like to do that. He said, sure. And uh, he's for six years been doing tours for us at Europe Through the Back Door. Martin was born and raised in Wales. He's trained as an archaeologist. When um, Martin, uh, when Margaret Thatcher came on board, uh, she tightened things up, and it wasn't good news for people looking for work as archaeologists, apparently, and, and Martin ended up uh, uh, becoming a tour guide in the castles of Wales. And Martin also teaches at the University of Wales. Uh, you'll see him occasionally uh, in appearances dealing with Welsh history and heritage on the Travel Channel and on the History Channel. And today, we're thankful to have Martin Delandovitz right here in our studios. Martin, nice to have you here. It's nice to be here, Rick. All right. Hey, Martin, uh, we're thinking about Wales. A lot of people go to England, and England is a huge destination for Americans, and they don't know too much about Wales. To me, Wales is castles and slate mines and people who sing a lot. How would you characterize Wales in a, in a, in a nutshell for an American traveler? What would bring us to Wales? Well, I think that... You know, America's a, a very diverse and, and rich country. It has so many different climates, so many different em- environments. Um, in Brit- Britain's much smaller, and it has as wide diversification. Uh, Wales is so different to England. It's geographically different. It's uh, environmentally different. It's climatically different. And, of course, it is ethnically different, because that's a Celtic country where Welsh is spoken in some parts by well over 90% of the population. So it's different in all ways. And the very short journey over the border from England is well worthwhile. And you are encountering a lot of sites that uh, were created because of the, let's say, antipathy between the Welsh and the English. Is that right? Yes, yes, it is. Uh, If you look at Great Britain as a a, a partnership or a family, uh, the senior partner always was England and uh, Great Britain as a political entity, England, Wales, and Scotland was held together by this senior partner by force. In other words, you're saying it was a coalition of the unwilling. That, that, that is correct. And uh, consequently, I think there's more castles in northern Wales per square mile than anywhere I've seen in Europe. Well, throughout Wales, in fact, we, we concentrate on the castles in North and Wales. And these castles are not necessarily, not generally Welsh castles, are they? Some are. Uh, you know, Welsh rulers trying to prove that they were as great as any built their own castles. Uh, but the greatest, of course, was built with the abundant wealth of England. So uh, England would establish these little toeholds with these castles? Yes, very much as they did in France. If you go to places like Carcassonne, hmm. uh, you're looking at uh, the Bastide there in, in Gascony. You're looking at uh, England putting out, well, as they did in America, colonial bases, defenses against the native. Now, when I look at an English castle in Wales, it comes with a little garrison town, which grows up to the, be the town today. Think of Conway, for instance, in yep. the north of Wales. Tell me a little bit about these garrison towns. Well, they are. You, you have to picture this. And it, it's, the good comparison is the John Wayne film. Look at somebody like Edward I as John Wayne. He, like John Wayne, was six feet four inches tall. And he moves west, and the natives are hostile. So he builds forts in the frontier. Hold on. Okay, so... Edward I, he was the king of England with this uh, rough-and-tumble frontier spirit, wants to colonize, bring those Welsh, like the American Indians, into civilization, right? Like, yeah. like John Wayne would do. So he builds his boonsboroughs, or his whatever we want to call mm-hmm. them, these little uh, garrison towns fortified by a castle. Yeah, and, and here come the settlers, and they are settlers, and they're in a frontier, and the natives will kill them. Settlers and, from England. From England. Planted over there. Planted over there. To establish English presence in Wales. Yeah, well, the castles actually need feeding. So the garrison towns become populated by people who are useful to a garrison. So there is your, your carpenter, there is, is, is your silversmith, so that the castle can exist. It, they become funnels through which the Welsh... Uh, wealth, such as it is, can be funneled through to the English system. So these wild and wicked and, and frightening Welsh natives could control all the countryside except for these little dots of English um, uh, control, the castle and its established little garrison town uh, within a wall right next to the castle. Yeah. It's, it's, how, do, how, do they, how do they support it with um, just, uh, uh, you know, uh, supplies and so on? Well, 
uh, there are two things to say here. Castles are often misunderstood. Basically, within a castle, you have a professional garrison and they've got nothing better to do than sit behind the high walls and wait. They've got nothing else to do. Now, the average population, they're ordinary people like you and me. If we misbehave, they're going to come out of that castle and beat the heck out of us. And that's how castles control medieval society. You can't go round them. They're there in the countryside controlling the wealth of that countryside. Now, how do they supply them? Edward I is the king of England. His greatest economic interest is not in Wales. So he builds all his castles on the edge of the sea so they can be supplied. And if necessary, the garrison can be increased by sea. The Welsh are wonderful people, but they haven't yet learnt to walk on water. (laughs) So now, what century was Edward I? Uh, He's end of the 13th, end of the 1200s, best known, of course, Patrick McGowan in Braveheart. Longshanks is who's known in that film. Okay, so about the year 1300, England under Edward I is establishing these incredible castles. And I've got to tell you, they're the most um, breathtaking castles you'll find arguably anywhere in Europe. And there's many of them. And they're on the sea so they can be supported by sea from England and which ruled the waves at that time, I suppose. Yep, and yep. this must have been state-of-the-art uh, castle technology. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you actually look at something like uh, Carnarvon Castle, it cost what was 90% of Edward's annual income. Edward I was bankrupt 14 years. Edward I spent 90% of his country's income building castles in Wales? On one castle. On one castle? On one castle. In all seven and a half years' income spent, he was bankrupt 14 years, thus establishing the old British tradition of overspending on defence. Now, that's something you haven't heard of here in the States, Rick, but yes, we were doing it 700 years ago. Whoa, okay. So there's lots to learn when you go to Wales, about castles and um, running your empire, I guess. Yes, yes. All right. Now, something else about Wales is the slate mines, and we're getting up into the modern age, but when you go to Wales, my understanding is most of the slate roofs in Europe came from northern Wales, and this was a huge industry, but now it's quite depressed. Yeah, in the south it was coal, iron and steel. How green was my valley, wrote Richard Llewellyn, but in the north it was slate. And and not just, of course, in, um, in uh, Europe, but uh, slates from uh, Carnarvon, where I come from, went to North America, yes, North America, what is now the United States, to South America, to uh, Africa, parts of India. Do you realize that in the 19th century, trains in India ran on rails made in South Wales? No, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal thought. And Wales was very much at the hub of the Industrial Revolution that really uh, churned into life in the 19th century. It was the coal, iron and steel that Wales was producing. But of course, in North Wales, the slate. Was was Wales benefiting from the Industrial Revolution or were they just the uh, disadvantaged supplier of the Industrial Revolution? Well, they benefited greatly. Uh, There was full employment. And, you know, there are stories of people starting in coal mines. Uh, One in particular I can remember where the person started as the, the lad that made the tea for the workers and ended up owning the mine. And somewhere along that progression, he stopped being exploited and started exploiting. And it's all a matter of comparative, isn't it? Now, today, there's not much slate mining going on, really, I don't think, because you go into these towns where everything seems to be made out of slate, and they're quite grim and glum and quiet, and the slate mines are just probably make more money taking tourists through them than actually mining slate. Is that true? That's th- that's the case. There are a couple of slate mines still working, and where I come from, because the majority of the houses are over 150 years old, they have slate roofs, and it is compulsory under planning regulations that you you must have a Welsh slate roof on your house. So if you have it, an old house in Britain, in, in, the it, government it, requires that, huh? No, where I come from, uh, in North Wales. So oh. that, for example, when Safeways uh, move in and build their supermarket in Wales, they must have a Welsh slate roof on it. Hmm. So that's good for the local slate mining industry. It's good for the environment. But if you're it, a tourist coming in, Martin, uh, what, what's some advice to understand and appreciate the slate industry? What, where would you go? I'd go to... Two places, Llechwedd in Blenefestiniog, which may sound incomprehensible, but it, it really is a place. And uh, the other place I'd go to is the Slate Museum of the North in Llanberis, which is not too far from Carnarvon. You mentioned the castle. Oh, yeah, I've not been to that. That would be an interesting way to follow up your visit to the mines to actually go to the museum. Yeah, it's, how can one say, the two things that you must do and understand in Wales are the medieval period with its castles. And to understand modern Wales, you have to understand its industrial past of 150 or so years ago. We'll have those specifics at our ricksteves.com website for folks who want to check out the specifics because give me that name again, Blenau. Blenau Festiniog. Blenau Festiniog. Very good. Now, does the choir heritage, the music heritage, relate to the slate mines? I've got this image of guys down there singing lusty hymns during lunch breaks or something like this and never see the light of day almost, but down they're down there splitting slate and singing their hymns. That, that, that's right. I mean, there's, there's a great 
travel writer in Wales. Yes, one even greater than you. Well, a bit older than you. Uh, Gerald of Wales, writing over 800 years ago, said the Welsh sing, but he also said the Welsh have no towns. Now, to have a choir, you've got to have people coming together. So in the 19th century, as people came together, be it in factory, mine or town, so they began to sing together. So the tradition of singing have been there for centuries. But coming together as choirs, uh, recent, and don't forget, it was the men that worked, and so it is the male voice choir uh, that uh, is the famous choir in Wales. Although women sing excellently too, I have to say. But that, that expa- I didn't realize that. That explains why you think of Welsh choirs as men's choirs. Yeah, they were industry-based. Now, as a tourist, you can actually go to... These, these choirs, actually, they're all, every, every town, every community has their men's choir, and they enjoy practicing at the church on a certain day. And then I, my experience is they always go over to a pub afterwards yes. and have a few beers and keep singing. That's right. And, and that's when you... I, I, I'm sorry to say, and uh, that's when you tend to hear the best singing. Uh, the, the ties come off, the collars are loosened, and they let rip. And they're not standing on the stage with their hands held in front, with their chests puffed out. They are letting loose. And the, the singing, it, can move, it moves me to tears. I've lived there all my life. It, the hairs go up on the back of the neck. The power, the deep power of, of singing. And of course, it was in the nonconformist, principally Methodist tradition that these choirs grew. And so the Welsh choirs sing hymns and the tunes and the words are so moving. Isn't there a big uh, famous choir festival where they have a competition? Yeah, now this is the Eisteddfod. Yeah, Llangollen is the international Eisteddfod. And people come, it's all forms about, um, let's say, singing, dancing, composition, recitation. But that's the international one at Llangollen. But the national Eisteddfod, which is the best of Wales, it's a funny festival in that it's the largest outdoor music festival in Europe. And it travels north to South Wales in alternate years and to a different town every year. So every year there's a national choir singing festival yep. competition. Yeah. And the word is Est... Eisteddfod. Eisteddfod. We will have specifics on this festival, which sounds wonderful, and something that I've thoroughly enjoyed with every one of my visits, how you visit the choir at the pub after the practice, loosening their ties and singing on. And it's like Monday it's here, Tuesday it's there, Wednesday it's there, every night of the week, somewhere within striking distance in your Welsh travels, you've got a chance to uh, have a beer and sit down with the choir and enjoy them singing. And uh, tourists feel very welcome there. And we'll we'll put that on our ricksteves.com website. So uh, if you want to enjoy the the choirs that Martin Delandovitz is talking about, you can actually go there on your uh, next trip to Wales. Wales is really quite ideal from a travel point of view. It's so accessible for me. England, yet it's so different. It's got wonderful B&Bs, fine public transit. Do the people people speak English? Oh, they do. Everybody speaks English as well as those that speak Welsh. They speak Welsh as well, but everybody speaks English. I would bet you'd uh, endear yourself to the Welsh people if you could say a few words. Oh, you would. You would. But I can't. Oh, but you should. You should. <laughs> <laughs> what, what five words should I learn in Welsh? Right. You should learn uh, good day. Borida. Borida. Borida. Afternoon. Borida. So you get up and you step out of your bed and breakfast in the morning and see some in the streets. Borida. Borida. Oh, that would blow them away. It would. Okay. Uh, what else? In the afternoon, you'd say Pnounda. And then, of course, you'd need to say thank you. Thank you. Which is Dioch. D- and you have to put all this guttural stuff in there. Yeah. Do it's it again. Back of the throat sound. Dioch. Dioch. Oh, well said. Dioch. Dioch. So that's thank you. That's, that's thank you. And... Uh, uh, the course then then is you're welcome, which is Kreuza. Kreuza. So this is not that tough. You would write that down on a little a three by five card in your pocket. You yeah. memorize these five words, and and you're in a pub, you're having a drink, and you look over to the next guy, and you raise your mug, and you say, you would say, uh, good health, which is yechid, yachi, yechid da, yechid da, yachid da, yachid da. Mm. Hey, um. Tell me a tongue twister that children would uh, – we have uh, tongue, you know, our tongue twisters in okay. English, you know. Uh, a Welsh tongue twister, that would be like uh, the ultimate tongue twister, I would imagine. Uh, the lorry rolled down the hill. Rolior lorry laurerast. Say it again. Rolior lorry laurerast. I'll stick to Yakida. <laughs> Yakida. Oh, Martin Delandovitz, it's so great to talk to you. Uh, it makes me want to go back to Wales. Hey, you'd be welcome, Rick. You'd be well welcome. That's great. Thank you very much, Martin Delandovitz. This is Rick Steves, and it's Travel with Rick Steves. How do you say thank you again? Martin, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.
Gail from Tucker, Georgia emailed us, and she has a travel comment. I travel a lot in the U.S. and overseas, and it's always a challenge to pack for a trip. Just how much do I eliminate but still be prepared for emergencies and going to the theater? Well, you know, Gail, this is an interesting problem for people living in such an affluent land as ours. We are raised and taught to be prepared for the worst scenario. Be prepared. Take an extra. If two people are using it and one's broke, you might even want a third. I recommend packing for it the best scenario. I pack for the best scenario, and generally that's good enough. And if something goes wrong, I buy myself out of that problem in Europe. Europe has all of your little essentials. Many people still think they don't have these things. Back in the 60s, they didn't have nylons, they didn't have deodorant, they didn't have razor blades, and we were trained to bring all that with us for the whole trip. Europe has all of your essentials. If Europe doesn't have one of your little personal essentials, you should ask yourself how 300 million people can live without it. I leave home assuming I'm going to live off the land. I'm looking forward to living off the land. I take enough toiletries with me to get me going, and I look forward to running out of toothpaste in Bulgaria. Really. Now I have a good excuse to go into a Bulgarian department store, shop around, and pick up something I think might be toothpaste. For many Americans, there's nothing like taking off on the open road. But with all the strip malls and congestion of the interstates, you really have to look for the most memorable route and a fresh breeze in your face. Coming up, we'll get some ideas on taking the Great American Road Trip from our guest, Jamie Jensen. We have practical advice on planning your USA road trip as we travel with Rick Steves. Merhaba, ben Lale Sürmen Aran. İstanbul, Türkiye'de yaşıyorum ve Rick Steves'le birlikte seyahat ediyorum. Now I'm going to give you the English translation of what I just said. I am Lale Sürmenaran from Istanbul, Turkey and I travel with Rick Steves. In case you want to hear it once more, the Turkish form of it. Ben Lale Sürmenaran, İstanbul, Türkiye'denim ve Rick Steves'le seyahat ediyorum. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, Travel with Rick Steves is all across the United States because we've got with us a man who's written the book on road trips in America called Road Trip USA. Jamie Jensen grew up in Los Angeles back when freeways were new and cheeseburgers cost a quarter, and every beach had a beachfront amusement park. After wasting his early 20s bumming around the country, making hay in Kansas and ghostwriting a book for the Grateful Dead in 1990, Jamie set to work compiling his book, Road Trip USA. In researching this book, he's traveled over 400,000 miles in search of the perfect stretch of two-lane blacktop. Today, he lives in Northern California with his wife and kids at the west end of US 50. Jamie, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. 
Yes, Jamie. Now you you've written the tome. I mean, what is this? This book is uh, thousand pages, and it covers the United States in kind of a grid, laying out the best road trips. What made you get into this kind of guidebook writing? Well, I've done lots of other kind of guidebook writing, and for you know all the major publishers that we won't mention. But um, the things that I always found most interesting were things that they weren't so interested in, in between places. They wanted to hear about big cities and amusement parks, you know, Disney World and stuff. And I was finding all these wonderful little diners in the middle of Nebraska and saying we should be sending people here if they want to experience America, not to Disneyland. Well, that's the essence of road tripping, isn't it? I think it is. There's a lot of serendipity or whatever you want to call it, the mm. kind of, you know, not having the vacation experience you're necessarily going to impress all your friends with, but to, to really have something that you connect with, you know, either history or, you know, great food somewhere, but just to really be in these places that you're traveling in. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of good travelers say wherever you go, there you are, and you need to find, and uh, bikers like to brag that when you're biking, you're, you're, you're going close to the ground and you're really in touch with all of your surroundings, and it's a more sensual experience. Now, when you're driving, what rules of thumb do you have for people to not just be lost um, behind the wheel with their music blaring and, and, and the wind uh, blowing in the window, but actually to um, connect better with the regions they're exploring? Well, I think my, my basic words come from those old railroad warning signs you used to hear, you know, be prepared to stop or stop looking and listen. But basically, the car is great for getting you places, but to really experience them, you know, pull off to the side of the road, get out, smell the roses or the wildflowers, and, and really feel it with all your senses instead of just staring at it through your windshield. Now, you've written your book where it's almost broken the United States out in a grid. It looks like you've got a bunch of north-south roads and a bunch of uh, east-west roads. Is that, that's actually how the interstate system was created, isn't it? Yeah, well, what, what I've tried to do is go back and revisit the world before the interstates were built. And these roads that I follow, you know, most people have heard of Route 66, right. roads like that. And these were around, these were the main highways before the interstates came in. And the ones that I've really focused on are the ones kind of in between the interstates. So okay. it is this sort of shadow network. You can get anywhere you want to go, but really enjoy the ride if you follow these roads instead of just bombing down I-90. Now, were these roads the standard major roads before the interstates came? Yes, these were state-of-the-art highways when they came through. I mean, people were incredibly excited. When the Lincoln Highway came through your town, pe- you know, marching bands would uh, be there for the ribbon cutting. Oh, yeah. Stuff. Well, like so in, in, in Seattle, you know, we have I-5, and all of a sudden Highway 99 uh, loses all its traffic, and, and the little towns stuck on, on, the, on, the, on the once the main road, now the back road, sort of become backwaters. And I suppose this is a way to get to America through the back door, you could say. Indeed, no, it's exactly that. And it also, like what you mentioned about taking away the traffic, that these roads are now very pleasant to drive. You've not got six lanes of you know, semi-tractor trailers following in your rearview mirror. You've got roads where the pace of life is a bit slower, and you can pull off and just see what that giant dinosaur is made of and things like that. And so it's just a much more pleasant kind of experience. Now, you've been writing this guidebook for 15 years, haven't you? Oh, at least that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been traveling since I was a kid, you know, helping my dad with the maps. I was always the early riser. Oh, boy. So it's, it goes back a long, long time. And, you know, I've, I buy very, very old travel guidebooks to these roads and try and, you know, rediscover places that a lot of places, you know, maybe we've forgotten about them, but they're still alive and well out there. Now, so. hasn't most of it, I've been to places, uh, especially in the Midwest, it seems, where things are just one big strip mall and there's not a lot of character. I, my image of road tripping is, is uh, kitschy diners and so on. Does that survive? It, it definitely does. I mean, there certainly is your Walmart sprawl a lot of places, but it, when you get farther and farther away from the big, you know, the interstates and the franchise food and stuff, you, there still is this America that's alive and well and out there. And, you know, you can go and catch a high school baseball game and eat at the local diner and really kind of experience things that have some local character instead of just being the same old, same old. Give me a quick overview. Uh, why, why is Route 66 sort of the, um, the, the, the classic route, and what other ones would compete with that? Well, I think Route 66 looked, lucked out because it rhymed with Get Your Kicks. Yeah. Without that song, I think you know people might well not have heard so much about it. I mean, it is a wonderful drive, especially, to my mind, across the southwest deserts. You know, it goes near enough to the Grand Canyon that it's still a pretty big road. But So that there's a lot of scenic attraction there. But the theme song is what did it. And, and I think my point when I try and tell people about these roads is that Route 66 is everywhere. You mentioned Highway 99. That's another great road that, you know, parts of it are kind of submerged beneath I-5, but a lot of it is still alive and well and is, you know, two-lane or four-lane, whatever, but with those nice little quirky diners and mom-and-pop motels and kind of, you know, passes through the center of town instead of going around the bypass. And that makes a huge difference in what you see.
I think it's still actually alive and well out there where, you know, people, you talk to people when you walk into their restaurant. They don't just point you to a seat and say, you know, do you want fries with that? Now, one thing that charms me about Europe, because that's sort of my beat, is the incredible diversity. You drive a couple of hours and things are entirely different. In the United States, of course, we don't have quite that diversity. But can you make a case that in America you find regional diversity? It, definitely, yeah. And, and where you will find it is getting away from the interstates and the kind mm. of franchises and the places where everyone else is passing through. The nice thing about getting off the big roads and taking these smaller roads, like the ones I've suggested in the book, um, is that you can still experience what it's like to be in Montana and how Montana is very different from Mississippi. But yeah, I mean, another thing, especially if you're going to drive all the way across the country, it is absolutely amazing. You know, the equivalent of driving from New York to Los Angeles is driving from London to Istanbul. Hey, we've got some uh, callers on the line, and we're talking with Jamie Jensen, who's the author of Road Trip USA. And uh, Jill is on the line from Nanaimo up in British Columbia. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Um. Years ago, 39 years ago, we, we planned a trip all around the United States and, and had a year to plan. But now that we're busy and, you know, oh, we've got a couple of weeks off, what should we do? It, it, it, it, I, I was looking for sort of similar to what you do in Europe, you just sort of a tour, a back road tour of, say, the Wine Valley or, say, the, you know, Midwest or something where you could fly there and just, you know, something a little more planned because I... I don't have that much time to, to plan a... So you want to take a road trip, but you don't want to do the driving? I don't want to take... It. We, we traveled for a whole year, so I don't have that time anymore <laughs> or the time to plan. So and I, I love to have a book that I could open and say, okay, we're going to do um, the Oregon coast or something like that. Do the Oregon coast. It's one of my many favorite places to go to. But if you don't want to drive, I mean, the great thing you can do is catch a flight, get a rental car. I do most yeah. of my driving yeah. in rental cars and sort of fly drive circuits. And in a week, you can have you know, the experience of a lifetime without having to spend a whole year. You can really have those memories. I just got back from a, you know, a week trip around the Deep South, and it was absolutely fabulous. And I keep thinking, why don't I do this more often? So that makes more sense to fly to where you want to get and then pick up a rental car and do your... And, and because you're not like a vagabond with six weeks off, you're working person with exactly. a week off. Yeah. Hey, Jill, have you actually had a, a road trip in America that was memorable? We spent a whole year traveling around the United States um, and Mexico. Living out of the, were you out camping? Out of small Datsun truck and camper. So we, uh, we went run across Canada in 67, and then we went all around the United States, yeah. What was your favorite uh, section to explore? Um, I actually really enjoyed the East Coast because it was so different, like Maine and, and, like, and again, because they were closer together, you saw a lot of diversity, um, you know, in, in, in short time, Washington, Virginia, Williamsburg, down to Florida. Mm. That was a really nice month, just doing that little area. And it got warmer as we went further south, so that was nice, too. That <laughs> was in November. So you had some of the best history in the country to look at. Yeah, it, it just boggled me. I just really didn't yeah. know all that. Hey, Jill, um, thank you for your call. We've got okay. more people online, so... Thank you very much. And uh, happy Look road tripping. reading your book. All right. Thank you. And we got Janice on the line in Ashland, Virginia. Janice. Hi. How are you doing? Fine, thank you. What road tripping are you thinking about? Well, in 1997, I took my four sons, who were then 6 to 13 years old, around the country for about two months, and we did the perimeter of the country. And they're teens now, and we're kind of thinking of doing the similar trip, a little shorter, but I was wondering if there are any particular offbeat places. They enjoyed, like, trying regional foods and different things on the previous trip, and I think they'd be even more adventurous this time. Um, what kind of off-the-beaten-path things could you possibly suggest for teens? Well, I think, I mean, we all have, we like our adventure in different ways, I think, but you were talking about going around the perimeter, and one of my favorite things is to get as close to the sea as possible. So oh, two yeah. of my trips, I follow all the way down the East Coast and all the way down the West Coast, do a little bit of the Gulf Coast, but that's, you know, I, I kind of, New Orleans hot spots and stuff, but I found it harder to find a good road there, but I, I'd just, I mean, South Carolina, Georgia, Northern Florida, some of these places where you can still kind of, before they get turned into golf courses, get there and experience where it really is some pretty beautiful landscapes and culture. I'm looking at the inside cover of Jamie's uh, Road Trip USA guidebook, and I see Chapter 6 is a road that crawls right down the East Coast all the way to Key West, and Chapter 1 is the famous uh, route down the West Coast of the United States. Oh, uh, yes, Route 1. I do remember one. that distinctly because the first time I drove it, it was in rain, and it was 
adventuresome. <laughs> They've improved the weather since then. Yes, uh, it was it was great though. Now you you did the six thousand no twelve thousand mile trip in sixty days with four kids. Yes, it was fun. <laughs> wow. They were great kids. All right, and how old are your kids now? They are thirteen to twenty. It'll be a great experience to get out there and try it again. I think so. We're looking forward to it very much. All right. Any other thoughts, Jamie, on keeping kids happy on a road trip? I, th- I think one thing that's really important when you're traveling with other people is to let everyone kind of have his say, his or her say, every once in a while. Yeah. You know, someone, each time you have a meal, let a different person choose where you stop, just so everyone feels part of it, because otherwise the driver kind of has way too much control over these things. Absolutely. And also bring tapes. With kids, bring tapes. You know, it's probably a lot easier now than it was uh, 10 years ago as far as uh, high-tech uh, distractions for the kids on a long road trip. It really is. Um, we had history tapes the first time around, and we might take those again, but we had boxes of books under the seat and all that sort of thing, and those take up quite a bit of room. All but, right. Well, Janice, thank you so much for your call. Thanks so much. And happy road tripping. Yes, you too. Bye. Bye. I'm Rick Steves, and we're talking with Jamie Jensen, the author of Road Trip USA, and we've got Les in Littleton, Colorado on the line. Les, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm fine. Now, tell us uh, where you've been uh, thinking about road tripping, or what's your road trip story? Well, we, uh, in, 19, in uh, 2002, we uh, took a road trip, 59 uh, days uh, through the maritime provinces of Canada, and just had an amazing trip. Wow, 59 days just in the maritimes. Right. Les, what was so intriguing about the maritimes, and why would you spend two months uh, in that one little part of Canada? Well, um, you know, the, each each province uh, up there is very different, and even within the provinces, like Nova Scotia, there's so many cultures represented. Uh, the food and the music and the and the people, uh, the background of the people is is just so so interesting, as well as the the uh, beautiful scenery. Now, all these cultures, I mean, it's just Canucks and French, isn't it? No, there are um, Scots. Uh, uh, the the area in eastern uh, or on the north side of Nova Scotia has has several Scottish uh, uh, communities. Nova Scotia, I never thought about that. Yeah, New Scotland, right? How oh, they got right. got Scottish people there still. <laughs> the New Glasgow, if you want to get specific, uh, has uh, even even as small as it is, it has a a variety of uh, of uh, cultures. Okay, so you got Scottish people in Nova Scotia. What else mm-hmm. did you find in Newfoundland? Uh, there are people from uh, from Wales and England who have uh, settled various uh, communities there. They have a, a an amazing uh, national park uh, on the northwest uh, side uh, there that has gorges and and really fjords, uh, inland fjords that are that are just uh, spectacular. Well, fjords isn't that where the the Vikings uh, first uh, touched down? That's right at Gross Morn, and and uh, this national park is uh, oh probably. I don't know, 75 miles south of there. Wow. Are, is there actually artifacts from the Vikings? I mean, do people dispute that the Vikings ever came to America? No, I don't think there's any dispute on that anymore. They uh-huh. have uh, they have re- uh, relics that uh, they've proved uh, dates yeah. on. And, and wow. So, so that I was think about the year uh, 1000 then, eh? Right. And then did they name that, pro- I mean, was that region called Newfoundland? Does that go all the way back to the Viking times? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. I think that... Uh, I think that came later. I, I'm not, I don't remember for okay. sure where that uh, naming came. but uh, Very sparse populated part of Canada. Yes, and, and that was part of the pleasure of this trip is that the, there was just almost no traffic. Is there a lot of tourism there? Uh, there is a lot of tourism, and most of the tourists are Canadian. The, the, uh, there are, uh, were several people that we ran into from the northwest, northeastern part of the United States, but uh, I think it's a, a hidden uh, gem for most of the people in the United States. So, Jamie Jensen, you could be doing your road trip uh, USA and, and nip into the Maritimes from Maine then, is that right? The Canadian Rockies I include in Road Trip USA, and I always get kind of snooty letters saying, well, Canada is not actually part of the USA yet. <laughs> and I also go up to uh, Montreal and Ottawa on that uh, Route 2 across right. the top. So I, I try to include Canada. But, and in fact, you know, speaking of multicultural stuff, uh, Montreal was a, a real revelation to me because it was like 
you know, traveling to France or traveling oh, yeah. to Paris that you got you have these little brasseries and things that you know and people smoking everywhere you go and it was like being in Europe somehow but it was only a hundred miles north of Vermont and Ottawa is one of the most European towns and in, in feeling towns in the, in, in the Americas I think well at Quebec City is is particularly Les have you been to Quebec City yes we uh, finished our trip by going up the St Lawrence River from the Gaspé Peninsula of Quebec and then to Quebec City in Montreal, Toronto. Yeah. Now, Jan Morris, the great travel writer Jan Morris, wrote a wonderful book on Canada talking about each region of Canada, and I, I, I was very inspired by that book. You want to maximize the travel experience and minimize the mistakes by taking advantage of somebody else's hard work. And that's why we're talking with Jamie Jensen, who's the author of a thousand-page book on road tripping around our country called Road Trip USA. Les from Littleton, Colorado, thank you so much for your call. Enjoyed it, Rick. Okay, bye now. Bye. So, Jamie, a lot of advice from different people who've had a lot of experience traveling. I think um, one of our favorite road trippers is Yogi Berra. He said, when you come to a fork in the road, what do you do? Take it. Yeah, no, he's my, my words of wisdom. I think mm-hmm. if you can get in touch with your inner yogi, then you'll, you'll be happy on the road. All right. Hey, your book is just an inspiration. It's a thousand pages of experience that Jamie Jensen has uh, gleaned over hundreds of miles of driving and 15 years of hard work. It's Road Trip USA. Jamie Jensen, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. You'll find more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com, where you can look up information on today's program and others in this series. You can also submit your questions and comments for Rick from our website to be included on future editions of Travel with Rick Steves. That's where you can also send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department and sign up for our Radio Waves email updates. Details are at ricksteves.com. Some of the people who help bring you Travel with Rick Steves include communication support from Sonia Grosset and Robin Goddard, technical support from Dan Suter and Matt Iglesias. Our theme music is composed by Jerry Frank. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.